Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I'm at the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Some three decades ago, I started my academic life as a business and economic historian. To uh, say that business history at the time was uh, not a crowded field would have been an understatement. It felt like you could count the number of full-time business historians on the fingers of one hand. And as far uh, as the uh, even more specialized field of financial history, which was my own area, well, let's just say I was working in splendid isolation. So I'm very glad to report uh, that far more historians are working as business historians today, and I am even more happy to say that today we will be talking about an incredibly important part of Canada's financial history. The book is Whom Fortune Favors, The Bank of Montreal and the Rise of North American Finance. It's a two-volume monster, so this interview will be focusing only on volume one, A Dominion of Capital, 1817 to 1945. Now, this volume alone covers almost a century and a half of this country's pre-Confederation and post-Confederation history. The author is Lawrence B. Muzio, a business historian, management consultant, and advisor to some of the most senior business executives in Canada. He is the founder of Signal Influence Executive Research and Communications, and has taught business, communications, and history at various universities in Canada and the United States. Of even greater interest is the fact that uh, Dr. Muzio co-founded the Long Run Initiative in October of 2018. The LRI, as it's known, was established to bring together academics, business leaders, and policymakers to better understand and use history and the analysis of historical records to shed light on contemporary business and policy challenges. Dr. Muzio joins me today in the studio. Lawrence, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you very much, Greg. It's a delight to be here and a delight to be interviewed by someone so uh, such a pioneer in the business history field. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. Now, what is the story behind your writing this momentous two-volume history? Well, it began, it is momentous, by the way. It is um, also monumental. It's also, as you say, it was a, it's a two-volume monster. It's a 752 pages in, in English and uh, 848 in French because of the French version is coming out uh, simultaneously as we were talking a little bit earlier um, uh, off-air. Essentially, the it began fairly modestly as an interview project about 12 years ago. The, uh, the bank decided that uh, it wanted to capture the institutional memory of current and former serving uh, senior executives. And so uh, they, they got me to, uh, to start that process. And as it progressed, the number got bigger. They said, oh, 25, 50, <laughs> 75, 100, 150. And uh, I was only too happy to, uh, to oblige. And then when I interviewed um, the new CEO at the time, Bill Down, he said, uh, Lawrence, so what the hell are you going to do with all this stuff? And I said, well, you should tell me. 
Uh, and he said, well, put together a proposal or something. Now, uh, I mentioned Bill, uh, Bill Down, because uh, it was my great fortune to have Bill Down at the helm, uh, a person of, you know, great, uh, great intellect and uh, a very successful CEO uh, to this day, one of the great leaders of the 20th century uh, at the uh, at the helm. So I essentially convinced him to do two books, one a popular history, which is a vision greater than themselves, which uh, was produced for the uh, for the bicentennial of the bank uh, in uh, in tw for 2017, and then a scholarly book. And so they got kind of two pr for the price of one in some ways. Uh, but uh, that was my my true mission was to was to have a uh, a substantive work of scholarship on a primordial Canadian institution. Because Bill Down, I think, understood something, and that is the following, that BMO is and was and is unique. It's an organization central to the, to the organization of the country. It is uh, Canada's first bank. It is um, essentially interwoven with the, with the story of confederation and the story of Canadian economic development, as you know well, as you've also written, uh, sometimes uh, getting into a little bit of trouble, but uh, also um, essentially being the, the kind of byword for Canadian, uh, Canadian finance in the, in the broader world. So uh, I think that's, that was a, a tremendous kind of generational opportunity. The right people have to be in charge. The right, the, the, it has to be the right time. And so all of those things kind of came together. And that's how you got uh, this work of independent scholarship that is before you today. So how did you or your publisher ever get one of the world's most famous professional and popular historians, Niles Ferguson, to write the forward, and he he almost did a kind of a precy of the book, so it was obvious to me that he had actually read the two volumes. <laughs> well, Neil Ferguson is uh, is a friend of mine, and I met him a couple of years ago. Um, I admire his work greatly. I know that he's uh, what he's done for the reputation of the of the profession is uh, is outstanding in his generation. He's also a controversialist. He likes to get, you know, likes to get uh, mixed up in, in contemporary politics, and uh, he likes to take uh, sharp angles of vision on certain things. Yes, at times he can be quite ideological. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. And so uh, I met him, uh, let's say, about uh, two or three years ago, and uh, I got him to uh, to address, uh, or I helped in the process of addressing some of the senior leaders in Canadian finance. And that's how we got to know each other. And, uh, and I asked him whether he would actually, you know, write the foreword to the to the book. And he said, yes, I would be delighted to. So, and, and he got it in on time as well. So, which is, <laughs> which is an incredible, incredible thing. But what you're saying about his pricey is, is actually correct. I thought, well, don't give too much away. But then he got, as, as readers will, will find out, he got into certain, um, you know certain uh, certain elements of the uh, you know the character of the bank, which was very interesting. So, it's a uh, it's a great honor to have him as uh, as uh, as my forward writer, along with Daryl White, who also wrote the forward. Well, and yes, a controversial individual to write a forward, you're going to get a controversial forward. <laughs> so uh, there were some false starts in terms of the establishment of the bank, but. The Bank of Montreal was finally incorporated in 1817. 
Can you tell us why it was incorporated at that time? And would it be fair to say that had it not been established, somebody else would have created something similar to the Bank of Montreal at that time? Or was it unique? I think undoubtedly something similar would have would have been created. Not the same, I don't think. And that's the difference. Okay, so so I think the the peculiar kind of combination of things that uh, that coalesce to form the the Bank of Montreal and it opening its doors in on the third of November eighteen seventeen was a, a a set of kind of um, interesting, unique, peculiar circumstances. You look at personality, you look at circumstance, you look at you know they're they're just coming off of the the War of eighteen twelve, the uh, the defeat and return, and then second defeat of Napoleon. Uh, as well as the the hard scrabble that was happening in in Lower Canada at that time, there's not much capital, so Montreal merchants essentially are trying through the medium of the legislature to get this kind of financial institution going. The imperial government is not exactly thrilled about this. The French Canadian majority is not that interested in it. So you've got a unique kind of combination of circumstances that eventually they manage to, you know, get it over the line. So I would say that um, also banking in this period is a relatively new concept. And why do I say that? Okay, you can roll back the taping and say, well, just a couple of months ago, I I visited the the world's first bank, the Monte dei Paschi di Siena, established in 1472. So you say, well, my goodness, it had like 300 years of, you know, whatever. People have been amassing money for a long time and also, you know, lending it and borrowing it and so forth. And of course, the Bank of England, 1694, um, you know, Bank of France, uh, 1810 and so forth. But in terms of the contemporary banking in the English-speaking world, it's it's relatively new. So this is a relatively new form. Uh, they look to the First Bank of the United States and they say, well, we can kind of copy that. Right. One, one of the interesting things about the, the foundation of the Bank of Montreal is how many Americans were involved? The Scots, definitely, and Ferguson underlines that in his, in his foreword uh, for several pages. Yeah, yes. you, th- you think it was only the Scots. <laughs> precisely, precisely. Uh, as well as Montreal, okay, Montreal merchants, British, and so forth. But there's, uh, it is kind of uh, at its deepest layer, it is, it is very North American. Then when you add the kind of uh, the necessity to get a charter, the necessity to to actually pass a bill in the in the lower Canadian legislature and so forth, and you get that kind of Canadian feeling as well. But Whitehall over in London is kind of looking and saying, "What well, these colonial people are doing? I don't. We're not really, not really sure." Well, it reminds me a bit of the old Northwest Company based in Montreal, which uh, with all of the the Scots that formed it and its opposition to the Hudson's Bay Company and uh, it being very much a North American company relative to the Hudson's Bay Company. And yet I note that the Bank of Montreal, when it was created and in its early years of existence, was very much connected in some ways to this indigenous fur trade, if you like. The first to the Northwest Company based out of Montreal, but also to some of the people that had worked in the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh, in terms of uh, the northwest part of North America. Can you describe that connection? 
Well, uh, I think that several of the merchants of the what are the so-called Montreal Nine, the the, the merchants that uh, originally began the the actual Bank of Montreal, had a number of ties, and those ties were yes to the to the Northwest Company, and then when the Northwest Company started to have you know more serious problems, then they moved on, you know to uh, to Hudson Bay, and in fact Lord Strathcona, uh, a later kind of key figure in the later 19th century was a, was a Hudson Bay factor. But I think one of the main points here is that uh, that there is a an attempt at asserting a kind of a, a primordial kind of Canadian capital presence, right? And uh, you're getting, you know, some kind of, uh, I, would, I wouldn't say opposition, but you're, I would say pretty stiff competition from the, from the empire. So the empire kind of strikes back a little bit, you know, in, the, in, that, in that way. So I, w- I would say that uh, at the beginning, there were several important connections. And then when all of that kind of went south, so to speak, they were relatively well established, so they could, uh, you know, they could branch out a little bit. But it is, uh, it is an important connection, as you say. Now, throughout this volume one, you talk about managing risk and uncertainty. What's the difference in your view? And can you give us a really good illustration of how the Bank of Montreal handled risk on the one hand and uncertainty on the other? Hmm. Well, I would say that the two are connected. I would say that uncertainty is kind of a more general condition. Here, Craig, I'm talking about different kinds of not knowing, not knowing what's going to happen, things that are out of your control. Um, you mean the unknown unknowns? <laughs> <laughs> Precisely, the um, the Rumsfeld um, protocol. Um, so, coming from exogenous events, example, or an earthquake, a virus, perhaps an act of terrorism, uh, war, insurrection, so forth. There are other kinds of uncertainty as well, that uh, regulatory uncertainty, political and economic uncertainty, and we see this crop up all the time from the earliest days of the Bank of Montreal, just to this week's uh, newspaper, or when you talk about, you know, Berkshire Hathaway removing four billion dollars from a from a project, citing explicitly political and economic uncertainty, so disagreement, conflict, and so forth. But what is risk? Risk is connected with uncertainty, but it is typically something I would say more maybe more specific. It relates to identifying, analyzing, accepting certain kinds of uncertainty in investment decisions, I would say. So you've got country risk, you've got uh, systemic risk or market risk, you've got uh, industry risk, you've also got credit risk. Mm-hmm. And I could say risk a lot, right? Because there are many, many different kinds of subjects. But you can calculate that kind of risk, you know. Where it's very hard to calculate uncertainty, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is, you know, the uh, the the Bank of Montreal leaders uh, from the first couple of generations onward got very good, I think, at handling both risk and uncertainty. And we think we look back and we say, well, what kind of uncertainty or risk were they handling? Well, first of all, not much capital, so they were tending to be much more conservative in their in their outlook you have uh gee i don't know a rebellion or two right you've got uh, a panic of 1825 you've got the rebellion of 1837 you've got all of that turmoil that leads up to the uh to the act of union in 1840 1841 
We've got all of the political strife of the 1840s. And in the political realm, people are gunning for the Bank of Montreal because they're the big cats. So they're going to take a swipe at them, especially in Canada West. So you've got all kinds of things that are happening that, uh, that a small, relatively small group of Montreal merchants are essentially have to deal with. You fast forward and you say, well, how about market risk, real estate, real estate in Canada West, oh my God, which they completely avoided. They completely avoided, they thought, this is probably not, we're, we're not going to get rich, but at least we won't lose our shirts. Right. So in the 19th century, in fact, the Bank of Montreal was involved in many of the major infrastructure projects in Canada, but none was as big as the Canadian Pacific Railway. What was the bank's relationship with the CPR, and how did it put together this immense amount of financing? It did have a relationship with the CPR, a very close one, as most people know. Uh, the CPR was a almost a creature of the Montreal interests, which um, right. you know, which you go back into how the Globe handled the CPR, and it's always you know, here's another problem with the CPR. You know, this is a Montreal interest and so forth. So it was subsumed into this grand kind of uh, conflict, a metropolitan conflict between Toronto and Montreal and so forth. But and, and between the conservatives and the grits to some extent. Precisely, precisely. And so uh, Bank of Montreal back then was very, uh, obviously very closely tied to the, uh, to the Conservative Party. Uh, having said that, you have Lord Strathcona and Lord Mount Stephen, who are both animating spirits in the, you know, in the CPR, especially George Stephen, both presidents of Bank of Montreal at certain points and very, very closely connected. I think sometimes people say, well, it's the Bank of Montreal that kind of financed the CPR, and that's not quite true, right? They lent uh, expertise. They lent a hell of a lot of money. So they were the Canadian bank par excellence that was funding it. But it was never more than, I would say, 15 or 20%, because you had, where was the capital coming from? It was coming from the United Kingdom. So that kind of coordination was extremely important. And so they, they would kind of loan in the secondary market as well. And also that branches were established as the CPR went, you know, down the line. So, I mean, the CPR is one of the great, probably the greatest infrastructure project that we've ever, we've ever attempted. Sometimes we can't build infrastructure in this country. And the fact that they managed to do it is a, it should be an inspiration, a model, an example, not necessarily in the this is say um, in the way that uh, say governments exactly handled it because there were some scandals along the way. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because of course there was the great scandal involving Canadian Pacific and Sir John A. Macdonald and the Conservative Party. Given that scandal, was it really worth it all to the Bank of Montreal? I think that they probably. Hmm. It's it's actually it's actually a very good question. I think that. They paid a pretty heavy price in order to have that kind of national dream, that public infrastructure realized in full. I think that um, in certain ways that the that the bank became perhaps too much, too closely tied to the government of the day. Well, it, did it suffer permanent reputational damage because of this in the sense of not just the reputational damage at the time, but for the next 100 years, it was still seen in the same way by people like Prime Minister Mackenzie King, who saw the Bank of Montreal as 
connected to that conservative scandal from decades before. There are um, decades of echoes of the, you know, in the wake of the uh, construction of the Canadian Pacific Railroad. No question about it. I would uh, I would say the the frequency of that as kind of uh, we need to determine that uh, exactly you're absolutely right. right about prime minister king being very suspicious but he was suspicious of the montreal interest because they were you know generally allied with the with the conservative party and also because they were the they were essentially the the department of finance right so for so long so it's not just the cpr it's um it's the fact that they're the big cats and they're the power because up until I would say the 1920s, the Bank of Montreal essentially ruled the roost. It made the world more or less as it pleased. It had a tremendous sense of responsibility in that, especially in the markets, especially uh, in international finance where it represented Canada. It was the official agent, fiscal agent of the government of Canada from 1893. So there's, there's a weight of responsibility as well as, you know, some of the more, say, ambiguous or negative things that go along with that as well. One of the things that I've gained from your first volume is the fact that the Bank of Montreal had some very talented managers uh, in the 19th century. And one of the most talented, at least it appeared to me one of the most talented, is Edward Clouston, uh, later Sir Edward. Can you tell us about him? Absolutely. And uh, I'm glad you asked me about uh, Sir Edward because it appears in your book, your fantastic book on that period as well. And uh, he's seen as a bit of um, perhaps a bit of a tragic figure as well. Sir Edward Seaborn Clouston occupies the position of general manager from about 1890 to 1911. So these are essentially important transition years for the Bank of Montreal and uh, for also for Canada's economic development. And so I would just say parenthetically, Greg, that I think that he is absolutely worthy of biography. I don't say that about too many people, so maybe that's my next project, God knows. I would say he also epitomized Canadian banking in that period, right? He was shrewd, he was uh, powerful, austere. He was far from cautious or conservative in his dealings which is kind of going against the grain. So one of the main lessons that I would say from this period is that how do you balance dynamism and form? And and sometimes they don't get it right, but Clouston was able to do so, especially in the desert years of the 1890s. You look at the uh, annual report manager's addresses and essentially he's saying, you know, things don't look good. They don't look very good, you know, and he explains exactly why. But when when the when the good times come in 1896, 7, 8, they take advantage, right? And so they're ready. They're ready organizational, and that is down to uh, to Sir Edward uh, Clouston. Now, he was also, he's a sir, but he was born in Moose Factory. That's right. He was a Hudson Bay factor. Right, precisely, 1849. And so son of a chief trader. Uh, we were talking about the HBC before and so forth. He gets his high school diploma at the High School of Montreal, starts working for the Bank of Montreal in 1864, so he's kind of a uh, one of the original kind of corporation men. Yeah, he's a lifer. <laughs> he's a lifer, exactly. They still exist, believe me. So he started at the age of 15 as a junior clerk. And so 
he knew what the branches were because he lived he he worked in Brockville he worked memory serves uh, Hamilton definitely Montreal and then he went to London went to New York so he knows the bank you know that he was being set up for uh, for greater uh, greater things and so his competence and leadership qualities I would say were very much in evidence in in that period he was also close to Donald Smith Lord Strathcona who treated him like a son which couldn't have hurt I don't think, right? So uh, if Lord Strathcona is your kind of pseudo-father. Godfather. Yes, exactly, the godfather, exactly. And uh, what can I say? In terms of his uh, his personality, he was uh, known to be a keen sportsman. He was, uh, he was a snowshoer. He was what they used to call a fancy skater, which uh, my head is off to him. He's a curler, swimmer, yachtsman, golfer etc. So he was a very interesting cat, I would say. Uh, in that period, the period where there's there's very little wind in the sails in the 1890s, you know, he's just waiting and he's preparing for that moment where, you know, a gust of wind is going to take the Bank of Montreal. And of course, as as you write, in the early 20th century, that wind started, you know, moving that uh, that bank uh, very quickly, and and Canadian economic development in general. So it's That's a right. fantastic. And story. During this huge boom, Clouston, of course, uh, is uh, called upon by many, including one Max Aiken, to get involved in various investments, put the Bank of Montreal's reputation behind them. In other cases, as a private investor. And, of course, as we all know, he gets a bit hung up on that uh, at one point involving the Canada Cement merger and the companies that went into the Canada Cement merger. And he, in fact, loses his opportunity to be president of the Bank of Montreal because of the affair. Can you summarize what the deliberations within the bank about this took place over a number of months a very difficult, I'm sure it was a painful decision for the bank. Yes. And then uh, whether you think that the, the Bank of Montreal executive made and the board made the right decision. Hmm. Oh, well, of course they made the right decision <laughs> because what they had to do is protect the uh, reputational capital of the bank. And we talk about the, you know, the regular kind of capital, but it's a reputational capital that is, uh, but it was a heavy price to pay because as I was saying, this person was almost built for the presidency of the Bank of Montreal. However, however, in the last several years, it wasn't just Canada Cement, it was, uh, you know, the capital. Um, Other utility enterprises yes. like Mexican Light and Power. Mexican Light and Power, exactly, exactly. So, uh, which they essentially lost, uh, lost control of. And if there's one thing that you can remember about the bank in this period that it is almost paranoid about its reputation uh, because it's right at the top and people are are gunning for it. They're gunning for it every single day as uh, Mackenzie King makes very clear in his diaries as well. So he's got, you know, a portion of the country, whether they created it or not, they are the, uh, they're the top cats. So what did they do? They put uh, Richard Angus, not Sir Richard, who refused uh, the uh, the title, but Richard uh, R. B. Angus as the president, essentially wheeling him out of uh, out of his late seventies. I mean, it was just really it was something that is like we need a safe pair of hands here, and uh, therefore it'll be R. B. Angus. And so for the board of directors, it could not have been 
an easy thing, especially because uh, considering the kind of the tight social circles of Montreal as well. So some of the official documents kind of tend to understate, I think, the uh, the impact of this. And uh, in the official history that was written, you know, 60 years ago or whatever, just kind of lightly, you know, this was okay. Everything you're, was okay. You retired for family and personal reasons. <laughs> exactly. You know, to Soviet Georgia or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. So, <laughs> it's, uh, but I think they, they learned their lesson about Beaverbrook, though. Uh, so later on in the decade, when Aiken was uh, wanting to, let's say, buy the Colonial Bank. There was a lot of hot correspondence between Vincent Meredith, the president, and Sir Thomas White, the, the Minister of Finance, in 1916, 1917, to say, you cannot let this happen. This will be the end of Canadian banking. So they, were, they, they realized who the enemy was, put it that way. When Aiken expressed an interest in the British, uh, Bank of British North America, which... Bank of Montreal eventually got uh, acquired in 1918. There was a real fight because Beaverbrook was, you know, very interested. Then he lost interest, and he went. You know, he was uh, he was a man of a prodigious energy, put it that way. And also, he could see where a quick buck could be made. But it was uh, very much. Uh, he was kind of like the Antichrist of Canadian banking. <laughs> <laughs> or just plain antichrist how about that you know let's talk about the uh, great war and what was the uh, the bank of montreal's role in the great war because it became basically uh canada's financier during that time or did it the the short answer is it's um Canada's other Department of Finance in some ways. So it has the organizational capabilities. It has the connections in New York and and the New York and London markets. And so it retools itself for the Dominion War effort. And this is one of the, I'll tell you, it's one of the great shining moments when there is a national need. The bank uh, responds with great and grave responsibility and uh, and duty to the uh, to the to the country because they feel it. And, you know, I'd say, well, they're you know capitalists. They're fairly rich. You know, they've got uh, beautiful mansions and homes and so forth. But the the sense of responsibility is uh, is is very deep. So there's that. There's a coordination of loans on the on the New York market, the London market, providing advice to uh, this. Remember, this is in the era of before a central bank. Right. So it's essentially Bank of Montreal is the coordinator in chief of the Canadian banking system. Yes, you have the Canadian Bankers Association. Yes, there are banks that are getting bigger, like the Royal, for example. Can I say that? The Royal. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, the Bank of Commerce and so forth. But it's still the Bank of Montreal that is the it is the top. It is the the kind of the nip plus ultra of uh, of Canadian banking. So, why does it go from that pinnacle then so quickly uh, after the war to a position where it's surpassed by the Royal Bank of Canada and later some of the other chartered banks? What caused that decline in terms of its competitive position? In the nineteen twenties, uh, we're coming to an end of a period of consolidation in the Canadian banking sector. It starts in about 1901, 1902, and some of the 
the banks that you've never heard of, like the uh, Yarmouth Exchange Bank and, uh, and so forth, or famously the Molson's Bank, which was, you know, a lot more fun, mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, considering its connections to, you know, uh, to beer. Uh, so all of these banks start to kind of falter a little bit or disappear under the great umbrellas of the of larger and more capable organizations like uh, the Bank of Montreal and the Royal Bank. I would say that in that period, there is a very close competition. So I wouldn't necessarily call it decline, but I would say that the, the Royal Bank stole a march on the Bank of Montreal by bolting on other organizations in a in a faster way in order to kind of build that capacity so so when you see it surpass it it's not necessarily in terms of internal growth yes exactly yeah uh, but both banks had pretty aggressive in terms of acquisitions during that period but was it that the Royal Bank just acquired so many more banks than and and with larger assets than the Bank of Montreal? I think that is the case, and uh, and so uh, the the last bank that Bank of Montreal uh, acquires in 1925 is the Molson Bank, right? And then it, it kind of stops, and then you see Vincent Meredith, the president at the time, see in the papers that the Royal Bank is surpassing, and it's not fair. It's just he's saying it's not fair. I'm, and it was it was said that he didn't speak to Herbert Holt for two years. He was so ticked off that this kind of this the order had been, you know, uh, rearranged. I don't think that uh, Mr. Holt was too upset about it. No, given his personality, <laughs> right. I don't think he cared. But exactly, but exactly. but this went on uh, through the uh, Great Depression as well, uh, and so. How well or how poorly did the Bank of Montreal fare during the Great Depression? How did it fare in particular vis-a-vis -vis the other chartered banks? And was there some long-term legacy from this? It's very difficult for a bank to actually control, you know, these exogenous events like uh, Great Depression and so forth. Because in a few quarters, they were derided as too conservative or risk-averse. But this was one of the great saving graces that they had during those turbulent times. The Bank of Montreal was in a very uh, unique, I wouldn't say very unique, but just a unique position. Why? Because it was the coordinator-in-chief. Yes, okay. It held the most gold reserves. Okay. It was actually surpassed by the, uh, by the royal. There was no central bank. It was essentially acting as a central bank at a time when the central bank was coming. That's right, and it opposed the, the creation of the central bank. Exactly, exactly. But it wasn't just the Bank of Montreal. It was the, in concert with the Canadian Bankers Association, minus the Royal. And I wonder why the Royal would have wanted a central bank so much. It was partly in competition, so it's like it's used it in a, in a competitive sense to say, right. yeah, exactly. But it would have almost certainly happened anyway. Canada was the only country that did not have a central bank, right, in the, in the North Atlantic world. Why is that? Is it because we we're backward? Well, maybe. But I don't think so. I think it's because the, uh, the CBA and Canadian bankers, in terms of circulation of money, in terms of monetary policy and so forth, managed the money supply and managed the circulation so efficiently that that was their main argument. Their main argument to the Macmillan Commission, which had been struck to inquire whether we should have a central bank, right, a Bank of Canada, they felt that they were winning the argument, at least on paper. 
but they lost the argument politically. Right. right. Uh, and of course, you could say, well, of course, we do. Of course, we needed a reserve bank. We needed a central bank. And then eventually bankers accept what the reality is. And then the Bank of Canada established. But they weren't they weren't altogether too happy, but they they acquiesced in it. And uh, now they're best friends. Well, Lawrence, we're going to continue uh, in a separate podcast talking about the history of the Bank of Montreal in the post-war period. But we want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. My guest today was Lawrence Muzio. We talked about his book on the Bank of Montreal, and in particular, Volume 1, A Dominion of Capital, 1817 to 1945, released this year by McGill Queen's University Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Greg Marshallden, and this podcast was recorded at Ryerson University on March 11, 2020. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. We look forward to you joining us again.